Hello and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Brett LaFontaine, the head of video production and podcasts for the ACFE. At the 33rd annual ACFE Global Fraud Conference, ACFE Research Manager Mason Wilder, CFE, and Deputy Superintendent and Director of the Intelligence Unit at the New York Department of Financial Services, Roderick Chambers, sat down to discuss the importance of technical controls and knowledge to protect your organization from fraud. Why don't you just kind of give me a brief overview of why fraud examiners need to be aware of current cyber fraud threats and trends. Fraud examiners should definitely focus and hone in on their cybersecurity skills and knowledge because we live in a remote workforce now. Everything that we do has a digital touch to it. Everything from our phones, from our laptops, the way that we even communicate with each other. And fraud occurs now digitally. We get our phishing emails, we get our vishing emails with a V that comes in via text message. All those are fraud techniques. And I always like to explain to my examiners, my fraud examiners, that while we do learn professionally how to protect our licensed entities, we also can do it personally as well too, protecting our own devices, our own assets as well too. So it goes hand in hand, professional and personal life, life protection. So one thing that I've really been like trying to kind of figure out the intersection of cybersecurity and fraud prevention. Have you have you had any uh, success there? Any recommendations for uh, doing that kind of cross cross pollination? Absolutely. You know the the intersection between you know, fraud examiners and cybersecurity is that it's the medium, it's the devices that we use to communicate back and forth. You know, fraud, when we look at fraud in the traditional sense, it was always on paper. You know, you go into investigations looking for the connections, clusters of data, anomalies, especially with things like uh, construction or, or, or procurement orders. And we're looking for those anomalies in finances, accounting. But now that it's in a digital world and cyber is involved, a lot of those accounting mechanisms are done digitally. PDF files, uh, big wins for the government, civil service, and private sector has been in healthcare with pandemic fraud. If you look at some of the, the metrics, billions of dollars have been stolen on unemployment relief, uh, COVID, fake COVID-19 uh, uh, sites and domains, uh, even donations from people like the World Health Organization, WHO, and the Center for Disease Control, CDC. All those aspects, threat actors take advantage of those. You know, people are hurting, they want answers, they want more information, and threat actors will take and manipulate those well-known reputable organizations for their own benefit. That's where fraud takes place. Uh, many people are aware of you know, unemployment uh, fraud that occurs. A lot of that was definitely exasperated because of the digital world that we live in. Uh, you know, to apply for unemployment benefits, you couldn't go to you know, physical locations. It was all done digitally, online. There were certain controls that are needed, driver's license numbers, first name, last name, even social security numbers, trying to identify and confirm you know, each of those individuals. Well, that's where fraud and cyber comes into play, where now that we can no longer go to physical locations, where uh, I, profiles are built online of uh, the security of those, that's where cybersecurity comes into play. Fraudsters take advantage of this new efficient way of doing business. That's why it's very important for that intersection uh, to be reviewed by both fraud examiners and cybersecurity experts. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that I've said on a number of occasions about pandemic fraud, doing, you know, interviews for newspapers that call the ACFE or something, uh, is like, it's all about, uh, you know, 
just contexts and adapting yeah. tried and true fraud schemes to different contexts and the pandemic was just absolute gold mine because I mean it's just completely unprecedented in terms of like a, an issue or an event or, or something that literally affects every single person on the planet and every single person on the planet is aware of COVID or was aware of COVID and so like that kind of context that if you can that mm-hmm. it's going to grab people's attention that's just like um, you know uh, like turbocharging fraud efforts exactly you know so that's the number one thing that people look at is you know they're thirsty for information they want to know who to talk to, where to go, what information is there. Threat actors, bad guys, or I tell people all the time, they're people just like you and me. They just have fancy names. We always tag them as threat actors or uh, some of those uh, factor terms, APT41, advanced persistent threats, or fancy bear. They're actually humans. They have ideologies, they have motivations, they have goals, just like you and I. And whenever we look at those things, those are the things that bad guys prey on. And especially during the pandemic time for healthcare relief, unemployment relief, anything that mass people, especially globally, you know, have a vested interest in, resources and assistance, you can expect there to be fraud involved with that. Uh, bad guys taking advantage of those opportunities. What are the most uh, effective ways that organizations can reduce cyber fraud risks associated with a, you know, new remote work environments. Absolutely. So I'm going to always go with this element. Training is number one. You know, I work with a lot of executives and a lot of planning and budgets, and training always seems to get the lowest amount of funds. I think it's also that, you know, it's that buy-in on that phishing training. You know, I do a lot of competition between different business units. You know, we have those phishing emails that go out, and it tells you if you reported or not. It's nice to build competition. How did the marketing department do versus accounting? How did accounting do versus IT? Training really builds in that muscle memory, that practice. They know, people know, what do you do when I get a a suspected phishing email? Would my CFO send me an email that's asking me to release a check or PO? Do they normally do that? Going through that training will prepare them for the real-time event. So training is number one on that one. You have to have that there. The second one I would tell people to look at is that because we live in a remote working world, there's a lot of third parties that are involved now. Third parties have taken over VPNs, virtual private networks that we look at, uh, support for your laptops, uh, even not even the fact that you have cell phones now that are provisioned for certain access uh, to government systems or private sector systems as well too. So when we look at our third party and our vendors, it's important to lean on them. Your vendors should be providing you training for these devices. They should be reviewing their security protocols as well, how they respond to incident response. So leaning on your vendors, engaging with your vendors, just not bringing them on board. And then lastly, you know, continuing education for everyone down, for everyone from the leadership all the way down to your new entry-level staff members. So this virtual training uh, that's joining your information sharing analysis centers, information sharing analysis organizations, exchange information, cyber changes, you could almost say literally every day. It's a new threat emerging. Uh, There's a new attack vector emerging as well too. So that'll be the next one. So training is huge. Staff all the way down, leadership all the way down to entry level. Uh, then it's going to be, you know, 
uh, looking at your third-party vendors, looking at them as well too, evaluating them, uh, and of course like technology as well too, bringing that on board. Can you just kind of walk me through the basics of, of what should happen when an organization determines that they've either suffered a, a, a data breach or uh, any kind of cyber fraud incident? Whenever, you know, when we look at incident response planning, when there has been a cyber incident, a data breach, uh, even a security event, I always tell people, I hope that you've done a tabletop exercise. I hope that you have practiced this. When an incident occurs, it's the wrong time to deploy this. When you look at that, you want to bring in the right business units into the situation. If a cyber event occurred, and it's true, and there's a lot of investigation, knowing that you have to go out for your physical security, your IT security, your, uh, your managed service security provider, uh, your board if needed, your CISOs, bringing the right people to the table is the first thing that should, go, that should occur. Meanwhile, each business unit has their operations going on. IT is looking at forensics, they're reviewing. You have your other IT group that's keeping operations flowing. You can't stop operations from moving on. That's how you, you make money, but at the same time an investigation is going on. You're bringing your shareholders, your stakeholders, your board members involved as needed, preparing for maybe a public relations message going out to those consumers impacted. Uh, your attorneys as well who should be looking at cybersecurity insurance. It's been talked about quite heavily with ransomware, and they're going to have to be a part of the incident response plan as well, reading and going through that fine print. What are my entitlements? What, uh, what areas are we liable for? And where can we leverage cybersecurity insurance to help us out? So when looking at incident response, first things first, you should, tr should practice this every year. Every single year you should run a tabletop exercise. And then two, bringing the right business units to the table to discuss the incident, the impact, how severe it is, if they have to bring anybody else on board. Why would it be important for a uh, fraud examiner or just, you know, why, why is it important to have the anti-fraud uh, perspective involved in incident response. Absolutely. So usually with incident response, you know, there's been a cybersecurity, a cyber event going on, and usually that's for fraud. Gaining PII, personal identifiable information, uh, PHI, you know, personal health care information that we have going on. So fraud is taking place. We have to think about why did the threat actor, you know, gain unauthorized access to a system? What was their purpose? To gain information uh, to deploy another attack. Uh, a lot of times with fraud, we look at our financially motivated crimes. But there's also the, the, the run-of-the-mill espionage as well, too, like SolarWinds and Microsoft Exchange that need to gather information for large nation states. Uh, so fraud examiners come into play to look at why did this particular threat actor go for this database? What was the purpose of taking the phone numbers or driver's license numbers or even you know, the social security numbers of this select database? Because it's, it's uh, almost like a cookie, uh, a, a trail of crumbs. One crumb to the next will lead you to the, in the, in the line, the big cookie that's out there. But fraud examiners can see those data points. They can put that analysis together. A lot of times these threat actors use a recycled tactics, techniques, and procedures. Fraud examiners have seen quite a bit over time. They kind of seen where where would social security numbers be used? Where would a driver's numbers be? Would, would they be used? They're able to look at that and contact the other sister and brother organizations that are out there to alert them. Uh, maybe an attack that's coming. Maybe a fraud scheme that's being uh, uh, that's being developed or continuously has been going on for quite some time. So fraud examiners have the ability to see the past, 
what has been useful, present, how that past actions by threat actors can be used now in a fraud environment, and hopefully begin to be proactive and predict what fraudsters will be doing with this information in the future. Do you do, you do a lot of tabletop exercises? <laughs> For tabletop exercises, I promote them because and part of uh, no, New York State's uh, Regulation 23 NYCR 500, we do recommend a regula regulation to have annual penetration tests as well as incident response plans as well. So one, I'm an advocate of telling, you know, small, medium, and large size companies to do tabletop exercises, and I also help those small, medium, and business size, you know, execute and deploy tabletop exercises. Uh, I think many times when we think tabletop, we think that it's an expensive uh, endeavor. You got to call in a third party or a contractor. Many times it's by the creativity of your team understanding you know, we're going to run through our process. How do we respond to an event, any event, and uncovering those security gaps? To me, it's not so much money or monetary effort, it's timing. How much time was a team willing to take to develop a tabletop exercise? And then taking that process and repeating it and getting better each time. You can internally develop your own incident response and tabletop exercise. but. 100% advocate of at least doing it once a year. And then, of course, uh, you know, bringing your teams involved and helping develop these tabletop exercises. What about, how do you think um, cyber fraud risks have really evolved? Cyber fraud risk in the last five to 10 years has evolved due to you know, efficient technology. I told people before, it's, um, you know, we look at technology as being efficient. The easier it is to purchase something, the easier it is to market. It's going to draw people in there. And with efficiency, doesn't always include security in mind. Uh, we look at, I always tell people, the uh, software development life cycle. Uh, we don't really build security in mind. We want our shareholders to see the benefit. They want to sell it, go IPO, and move on to the next one. There's lots of security flaws. From the, from, even from the, just the idea phase, we should be embedding security at the very beginning. Everything from the development of the app or the domain or the technology all the way to the end goal. Because we live in this digital world, and again, the, the pandemic really you know, exponentially sped up this process, which we've evolved in probably the last two years faster than anybody ever thought in the last 10. So two years of the, the last two years have really expanded we have apps for just about everything, and the apps were designed to keep businesses afloat. You couldn't wait six to 12 months to develop an app. You needed the app now. We are now in pandemic lockdown mode. We need to get our product out there, develop it, deploy it, and go. That had security, uh, you know, missing security flaws. Uh, so when we look at you know, cyber fraud risk and, and the importance of it, it, it's expanded so quickly in a short amount of time which is why cybersecurity professionals and, and, and fraud examiners are, are, are really at a crossroads right now where we're, our skills overlap. Um, if you're really good at fraud techniques and you build it into a cyber technique, you've just really created almost a new position, very valuable position, you know, that's able to see both angles of that. Likewise, for somebody who's very talented at cybersecurity or IT work and can see fraud trends, you've now created a new position that's very valuable. Uh, simply because efficient application, efficient technology. We as humans want things very easy and very quickly, forgetting everything with security. If you ever reused the same password because you're just tired of building a username and password for an app, 
That's part of efficiency. We just want it now, we want it easy, we want to get into our account. We miss the whole security aspect. Why is it different and unique? When we look back in the way that we you know, navigate our own lives as far as efficiency, we can begin to see security flaws, reused passwords and usernames, uh, using professional credentials instead of your personal credentials, uh, going ahead and not updating on your uh, PCs, if you have PCs, antivirus softwares, or relying on things such as MacBooks that don't require antivirus software, thinking that it's perfectly safe, but there's still threats. In our personal lives, we circumvent security. Why should that change in a professional setting? We're going to circumvent security there as well, too. So this really is a good time to, you know, that, that evolution of the threats that are out there that go hand in hand with technology is being, bringing together fraud examiners and cybersecurity together to evolve the, uh, the process. Can you talk a little bit about um, what are the best ways for fraud examiners that might not necessarily have as much of a technical background but are curious um, to, you know, do threat intel? Absolutely. So, so fraud examiners, when they're curious, which that's the first step, they're curious about cybersecurity, about IT, I always, I like to encourage, you know, those rotational assignments. Having a fraud examiner go to the IT department and just you know, work, dedicated work with them, two to three weeks, learn IT, have them show them the ropes. And likewise, IT gets to go to fraud examiners as well too, those that have an aptitude, have a desire, the curiosity to go to that unit and work two to three weeks. The cross-pollination the cross of those work, those, uh, those business units will really help you know, develop both sides on for fraud examiners and cybersecurity. A lot of times, you know, it's, it's do-it-yourself videos. It's, You've seen it before, you know, YouTubes, your Google searches, and so forth. You learn a lot just by the instructions that are out there. It's funny when I tell people before, you no know, threat actors aren't geniuses that come up with this on their own. Sometimes there's basic tutorials and instructions on the internet. You can just Google search and find out how to do it. But the, it always starts when I tell you know the team that I work with and examiners, it's the initiating the curiosity. If you're curious, if you're curious about the craft. I'm going to support that, and I want to definitely grow that seed of curiosity. That's what I think a lot of both private and public sector has to do is begin to find those that are curious and then feeding that curiosity. And you really can drive up the workforce and that knowledge pool as well. Any, uh, any other ones? Last point is just continue learning. This the education threat actors change tactics it seems like every single day and they, they, they deploy all their changes on holidays. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're going to pay your staff a little bit more on the holidays because we need them, uh, summer vacations, that's when they usually spring up and do their worst. So that would be the big point. <laughs> thank you to Roderick Chambers and thank you for listening. You can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Fraud Talk on acfe.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Brett LaFontaine signing off.